It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. about Billy Idol. I've never met him in person, but I like two things about him. One, unlike a lot of people that uh, are, you know, big famous rock stars or people that have gained a lot of critical acclaim over the years, he's only five foot nine. I think I'm five foot eight. So I feel like I wouldn't have to look up to Billy Idol. Like I'm almost at eye level with Billy Idol, which I like. Also, Billy Idol seems like he has a little bit of a, a sense of humor. I don't know if you remember about uh, two, three years ago. They started, uh, he and Mayor de Blasio started this Don't Idol campaign. And I thought, I I was really impressed with that. I gave him a lot of credit for being willing to play on the uh, pun of his name. And this particular song has an added resonance because of the people that are yelling in China. They are very unhappy with the Chinese government's zero-COVID policy, which is essentially a pretty broad lockdown, which as soon as COVID rears its head in China, they uh, take steps to lock everything down. It's had a devastating effect on the economy in China, at least certain parts of China, and people are just not happy about it. Here are some of the anti-lockdown protesters in China. Over the last week or so, these protests have erupted in China. This is almost unprecedented in modern China. These protests are erupting in major cities and major universities across the country and being shared on social media platforms like TikTok, which is an unusual sign of unbridled public anger towards the Chinese government. Demonstrations happened over the weekend in China's largest city, Beijing, 21.5 million people. Shanghai, 26.3 million people. Wuhan, 11 million people. And the protests appear to have started in one city last Friday after a deadly fire broke out in an apartment complex in an area where residents have been under lockdown for more than 100 days. Can you blame them? So um, one of the media outlets that I think has been doing a great job chronicling not only what's happening in China, but putting it in a broader international context is a relatively new media outlet called Semaphore. Uh, Very pleased to have a senior editor for Semaphore joining us live from London, Prashant Rayo. Uh, Prashant, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So did these protests all start with the 
COVID zero lockdown policy in China? Yeah, I think that's the sort of you, you outlined it well in your sort of introduction. And this is sort of the core frustration, though, obviously, in China, there's um, many others that come to the come to the fore over time. But that, that's certainly sort of at the heart of what's happening now. Help uh, our listeners understand exactly what the policy is in China. We all experience some version of a lockdown, especially in cities like New York, but almost every place in America at the at the height of the covid pandemic. You couldn't go to work. You couldn't gather, couldn't have uh, people over for Thanksgiving with uh, entities of 10 or more. Is uh, is what's going on in China the same thing or is it a little worse? Yeah, I would. I think it's conceptually the same, but we have to sort of really differentiate between orders of magnitude. So I'm in London. And um, similarly, you know, in the early weeks of the pandemic, we had uh, what we described as a lockdown here. Um, But what was happening in China is just so much bigger in the sense of, um, you know, if you were traveling currently right now as well, um, and for most of the period since the pandemic began, uh, traveling in and out of China requires a multi-week quarantine process. Um, and so, you know, I went to Hong Kong in October 2020, and I had to stay in a hotel room by myself for two weeks um, before I was allowed out again. Um, you know, there was, con- that has since become even, uh, that for a period, sorry, became even more stringent with uh, multiple uh, rapid tests while you're in the hotel room to make sure you haven't contracted COVID. Um, and the same is true on the mainland in certain places and for certain periods, far more intense. Traveling within, you know, within the country has similar restrictions. Um, several small businesses were forced to shut. Uh, you know, just the, the level of lockdown, I think, while conceptually it is the same, is far, far more intense. The, the sort of definition of what a close contact is is also far more intense. Um, I think one of the issues in China has been, you know, in certain cases, people in your building, your apartment block are regarded as close contact. So mm. if somebody in your apartment block has uh, COVID, the entire apartment block gets shut down. Um, and then you are subjected to multi-week shutdowns. You're not allowed to go out for food or water that that's delivered to you, though there's also been complaints that it's been insufficient or poor quality. So really, you know, once you start peeling away at the kind of extent of it, it's really astonishing um, having to live through the the sort of extent of the restrictions that they have for as long as they have. What form have these demonstrations taken? I mean, when we say people are protesting, what are these folks actually doing to protest? So, yeah, I think it's important to put in context. We There aren't it's really hard to verify and understand how large and expansive these protests are. You know, for one, you know, censorship in, in China is very, uh, very good um, from a from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party. They are able to take down a lot of these videos and uh, protest symbols very quickly. Um, and also, you know, you, you did say uh, you know, Shanghai is a city of 26 million people. And we, we think maybe a few hundred to possibly possibly more than a thousand protested. So it's still you know hard to tell how expansive and how extensive these protests are. Um in terms of what they've been doing, uh, it's been a variety of different things uh, on some university campuses and in sort of public areas of Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan. Uh, they've been holding up blank pieces of paper, uh, which sort of symbolize their inability to speak out. Um, others have been, you know, there's been some really creative protests to avoid censorship. A lot of um, people on Chinese social media have been posting uh, you know, the sort of trope is you can't criticize the party or the or the state. 
And so several people have just been posting the Chinese word for good uh, multiple times. Hmm. Uh, so good, 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 as if to so parodying and um, the sort of the censorship regime. Um, others have been sort of um, posting. There's one sort of uh, relatively uh, internet popular protest, though I don't know how sort of actual on the street popular it's been, of uh, posting um, a mathematical equation called the Freeman equation uh, because of the pun of free man. Um, it's been really kind of fascinating to watch though again i would really stress it's you know this is an enormous enormous country um, and the number of people protesting has not been commensurately enormous with the size though it has you were right to say still been remarkable given the extent of control the party state has in china uh if people just tune in we're, to, we're talking with uh, prashant rao he is joining us live from london he's a senior editor with semaphore which has been doing a great job covering these protests it's no secret that the Chinese government for the last 75 years or so has been doing all sorts of things that clamp down on people's freedoms. Obviously, for decades, they had in place this one-child policy. You can go to different cities and you could see uh, child labor that would make any American cringe. There's all sorts of uh, problems with rampant pollution. There's all sorts of problems with sanitation. It's not unusual to walk around some places in China and just see people defecate right in the middle of the street. There is very strict regulation of religious freedom. Uh, You mentioned the incredible censorship that goes on in China. There's a lot to be upset about if you're a Chinese citizen. Why is this different? Why has this um, degree of clampdown by the government resulted in protests, in, in mass protests such as they are, Whereas a lot of the other things that the Chinese government has done to their own people haven't necessarily resulted in these same protests. I think it's important to sort of think about where China was 70, 75 years ago, as you say, uh, you know, it's an incredibly poor country, uh, incredibly uh, cut off from society, uh, from global society. And I think one of the reasonable things we can say is that, you know, the Chinese uh, state and the party since, you know, the 1970s and 1980s, as it's opened up, has delivered possibly the most, you know, I think economists would largely agree, the most successful anti-poverty campaign in human history. Hundreds of millions of people have become wealthier, healthier, um, more able to travel, live their lives. I think it's easy from afar um, to think that sort of uh, China is just a totalitarian kind of place where you can't do anything um, all the time. And in fact, you know, I lived and worked in China for a period and I lived in Hong Kong for a long time. Hong Kong, obviously a very different city. Uh, but on the mainland, there is a, there was for a long time a degree of economic freedom and an ability to move around, to move around the country, to travel abroad, to, you know, set up small businesses and have them grow, to, you know, purchase property and see your family and, uh, migrate within the country to bigger cities or all of these kinds of things that, you know, regular people want. And China was able to provide from an economic point of view, even as politics was heavily curtailed. And I think what's one of the significant changes in the last two or three years is so much of that has been taken away. Mm. Um, you know, you talked about how the Chinese economic growth has really flatlined. Um, for a long period, you know, the, the trope was that um, to the Chinese Communist Party had the bicycle theory of uh, political economy political economy, which is, you know, you have to keep moving forward, otherwise you're going to fall off. Um, and so to some degree, that is that is manifesting itself. Um, Chinese economic growth has slowed substantially from three, four years ago, um, largely due to these lockdowns. Uh, supply chains have 
ground to a halt. Um, and so, and, and you know, the kind of the daily quotidian freedoms that people had to, you know, go out to dinner, to sort of see their friends and go to movies. That's been sort of a particular, you know, one of the sort of smaller protests that's been going on is people just shouting, I want to go to watch a movie. Um, and that's been taken away. All of these sort of smaller daily freedoms have been snatched away through the pandemic. Um, and of course, all of us suffered through that for a period, but this has just been going on for so long now. And I think it's really hard to, um, I think watching that video that you sort of spoke about of the fire in Urumqi, um, in which 10 people are reported to have died and, you know, firefighters apparently couldn't get to the building because of COVID restrictions in the area, that has really resonated. This idea that, you know, that could be anybody. Um, apartment blocks get shut down all the time. And if a fire broke out um, and a fire engine couldn't get to your home, what would happen to you? And that, I think, has been, that has been the spark, but it's kind of spoken to the the everyman quality of this pandemic, which is everyone suffers in China equally um, in a way that hasn't normally been true of prior um, prior restrictions imposed by the party. One of the, you alluded to the uh, Hong Kong protests, which also got a lot of attention two years ago. As it stands now, do we know what's going on in Hong Kong about any protests specifically targeting the zero COVID policy? What's happening in Hong Kong now? So Hong Kong has actually opened up a little more. One of the, you know, there are obviously many differences between Hong Kong and the mainland. Um, Hong Kong actually uh, has some mRNA vaccines, um, whereas the mainland doesn't. Uh, You know, vaccine efficacy is higher there. Uh, Vaccine take up has been higher. Um, But in terms of protests, there have been some small protests with regards, you know, sort of um, in support of the mainland protests. Um, But they've been relatively uh, restricted in 2020. uh, the party imposed a national security law on Hong Kong, which makes mm-hmm. it incredibly dangerous to protest, to speak out, um, to, you know, newspapers, several several pro-democracy papers have either shut or been heavily, heavily curtailed in their coverage. Um, the, the courts have um, very much shifted away from the independence-minded um, sort of uh, independent judiciary that used to exist in Hong Kong. And so what Hong Kong has, uh, in, in many ways, actually from a purely sort of on paper legal system, become a more draconian place than, than the mainland because of this national security mm. law, which it, is retroactive. It is extra extraterritorial. It's extremely, extremely restrictive. Um, by the way, just fill us in because you alluded to the differences on the mRNA vaccine in Hong Kong versus mainland China. In mainland China, what's the story there in terms of vaccines? What sort of vaccines do they have access to right now? And if the government has no problem telling them what to do, why is the government not simply mandating getting whatever vaccine they have available? I mean, this is one of the real mysteries of this pandemic. You know, I think um, China isn't entirely a black box, um, but it is an incredibly opaque society. And one of the things I think that is really hard to understand is why there has not been a broader vaccine mandate. One of the things that has happened since this since these protests broke out has been that the government has said um, and the authorities have said they will start to um, promote vaccines more. Uh, China. Uh, elderly people in China are vaccinated and boosted at a much lower rate than Americans, than Germans, than than the Japanese. Um, China's uh, domestically made vaccines, which are the only ones available, are efficacious. They are, you know, good at preventing death and serious illness. They're not as good at preventing um, sort of uh, infection, uh, but you know, they they do the important thing. And um, but just not enough people have them. And um, and then combined with the fact that they're not as efficacious, that means that. 
one of the real fears of this is, you know, we can talk about the politics of zero COVID, but actually the healthcare infrastructure is almost just as important in China. Um, so you have a less vaccinated um, society with a less, epic, you know, a, a less sort of good vaccine for lack of a better, you know, um, for, uh, a vaccine that's not as good as an mRNA vaccine. Uh, but also, you know, Chinese hospitals have fewer ICU unit units, they have fewer nurses, they have fewer hospital beds than the United States, than Europe, than Japan, than Korea, than Taiwan. And there is a real fear among sort of Chinese healthcare analysts that if you were to open up, um, there would just, you know, in, in the post-Omicron world, there would just be a rise in infections. Mm. And it's not clear that the Chinese healthcare system can handle what may come. Mm. Um what role are ads for escort services playing here? Uh, I've seen some coverage of that, and a lot of people have asked me about it. And uh, when I can't explain it effectively, I know it's time for me to ask someone else. What is going on? <laughs> so um, in, in the sort of days since the protest broke out on Twitter in particular, searching for Chinese cities uh, led to a flood of ads for escort services, um, which appears to have been a, a sort of misinformation play by you know, the argument goes, though I don't think it's been fully independently verified um, that this is the Chinese state trying to flood the zone with um, with misinformation to uh, cloud what is actually happening. Um, I think in the past few weeks, um, some of these controls on Twitter seem to have been relaxed and it's a little easier to get these through the system um, and they haven't been taken down as quickly. I think, you know, the the Chinese state has, um, and the party was has, you know, long been... Um, very good at um, walling off the Chinese internet and using the Western internet um, it, it, on its terms. Um, and, and this is the first time in which it seems like, some, at least in the early days, the, the extent of the protest surprised them and the Chinese internet was not as well censored and the Western internet seemed to be much more interested in China. And, and so I think there's been some response, the misinformation potentially, you know, again, it hasn't been verified um, as far as I can tell, but that seems to be the general assessment of sort of independent experts that this seems to be what's happening. Could this be uh, the, if not the start of, the continuation of a new sort of Asian spring? Is there a possibility that these protests could actually lead to a significant easing of this COVID restriction policy and or a resignation for Xi Jinping? I would really separate those two issues, mm-hmm. um, the politics and the zero COVID. Um, one, you know, we've started to see already the um, the authorities in China have relaxed in some cases, some of these COVID restrictions, um, not to the extent that, you know, this is like New York or London by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, uh, the kind of de- definition of close contacts in some areas has been relaxed. The kind of testing requirement has been relaxed. Some quarantine regimes have been lowered and they're trying to promote vaccination. Um, so there is some extent of, you know, opening up, though you should, we shouldn't overstate that because it's still a heavily curtailed society mm-hmm. from the COVID point of view. Now, from a politics point of view, I would, I would be very reticent to say so. Uh, I think, you know, this is Xi Jinping just won a sort of third term in power um, at the sort of Communist Party Congress a few weeks ago. It, you know, he has over time um, tightened his grip on power. This is not a sort of situation that I would see that, you know, suddenly um, things will rise up. Again, I think it's it's worth being circumspect about the extent of these protests. They are, of course, remarkable because China sees so few of them and they're, they're coordinated on the same issue. But, you know, this is a huge country and this is not as many people as we would think proportionately. Plus, you know, the, China invests a lot in surveillance, in public security, in police. 
Um, we've already begun to see a be the beginnings of a crackdown. The fact that these protests over the weekend have not been replicated in large measure in the days since. Um, there have been arrests. There are reports on, you know, credible news sources like Reuters and Bloomberg uh, and the Wall Street Journal that um, these sort of public security apparatus is beginning to look out for people who were at these protests to arrest them. This is, you know, one of the functions of the vast surveillance state that's been constructed in China. Um, and so I, I would be at least a little sort of um, wary of making that extent of a prediction uh, politically. Uh, last question, Prashant, and I have actually pages worth of questions, so I hope you'll come back soon because uh, I could talk with you for hours and I appreciate you being so generous with your time this morning. Uh, there's been some criticism of Apple because folks have said that Apple has restricted the airdrop function that some of these Chinese protesters have used. Set us straight on that if you can. What exactly has Apple done, if you're aware? So the the sort of um, allegation appears to be that uh, airdrop has been restricted to the number of people and for the period of time in China. Apple's in a very difficult position in China. I, I don't mean to justify it, just to explain it. Um, you know, a Apple's... Uh, Basically, everyone who has an iPhone, the likelihood is that iPhone was built at a facility in Zhengzhou in central China. Um, Apple has invested huge amounts of its infrastructure and supply chain to build its products in China. Um, similarly to Tesla, actually, um, and several other American kind of companies, they are very tied into the Chinese economy and the Chinese supply chain. And um, Apple at this point, I'm, I don't mean to conflate that this is why they've done it, I just as, as meaning of, as providing some context. Um, there is a one, it's a huge domestic market for Apple, but also it's a huge supply area. And Apple has, you know, long come in for criticism for its ties to China and its reliance on China. Now, in the past for a few months and years, it has been diversifying its supply chain. You know, I think um, activists would argue not enough. Uh, economists would probably, you know, sorry, business analysts would also probably say not enough. Um, there are more and more iPhone parts and AirPods that are being built in India and Vietnam. Um, but uh, Apple, Tesla, several American companies are hugely reliant on China, uh, both as a market, but also as a uh, sort of hub for building their products. Uh, Prashant, I actually have to end it there. I appreciate the time this morning. I hope we could talk again soon. Thank you very much. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 